As I always like to encourage you, be expecting that God is going to speak to you this evening. Have a pen if you can. Have somewhere to write down a note. Especially this evening, we're going to be going through a, a good chunk of text, and there's going to be a lot of little things coming up. And my prayer is simply that God will just shine an absolute spotlight on the one or two things that he really wants you to hear for your life and where you're at. So be ready to receive that from the Lord. Be expecting that in faith. Last week, Seti saw Isaac and Rebekah being blessed with the birth of twins, Jacob and Esau. And we learned how Esau was a picture, a type of the flesh, and Jacob was a picture and a type of the spirit. Esau was a picture of the flesh, the, the physical part of ourselves that only desires to please itself and serve itself. And Jacob was a picture of the spirit, that part of us that is eternal and the part of us that God makes new when we enter into a relationship with him which results in a desire in our spirit to please God and live for him. And we talked about the inherent conflict that then takes place inside of every believer as the flesh and the spirit war against each other, the flesh wanting to live for itself and the spirit wanting to live for God, creating this internal struggle. And as this picture developed, we saw a tired and hungry Esau sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He sold his right to a double inheritance, his right to be the, the priest and minister and leader of his family because he placed no value on those things while Jacob deeply desired them. It was a picture of the flesh placing no value on eternal things but rather only on immediate gratification, while the spirit craves eternal things, the things of the kingdom. This week we're gonna travel forward in time across several decades. We're gonna learn some valuable lessons about the Christian life, about family, and there's even gonna be some fascinating Bible prophecy stuff snuck in there too. I know we don't do that very often, but just to do something different, we'll stick that in there. And I do wanna say there's some messages when I'm preparing messages, I get scared and the reason I get scared is because I think someone in here is going to think I'm going after them in this message. Because there's gonna be stuff in here that I know is gonna cut close for somebody. I don't even need to know your story. I just know that that's gonna be the case. So please know, it's not me coming after you, it's God coming after you, okay? <laughs> that's what's going on. So I'm just teaching what the Bible says. I didn't have anybody in mind. I, I don't sit there with a picture of all your faces on a board and go like, who am I really gonna get this week? Oh, it's been a while since I've been after him. Yeah, him, him. And then I'm just gonna preach and just stare at you throughout the message and wait for the conviction to fall. That's not what's going on. It's just the Bible doing what the Bible does, okay? So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 26, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 12. We read then, underline the word then. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. Underline, the Lord blessed him. Now pay attention and see if there's anything that the Lord seems to be emphasizing in verse 13. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Do you think the Lord wants us to notice that he was prospering? I think he does, and we'll get to why in just a second. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. And I had you underline that word then because it really means 
after that. Well, after what? Well, take a look at the text just before that, what we were looking at last week. It ended with Jacob confessing to Abimelech, the ruler of the area, that Rebekah was indeed not his sister, but his wife. So what happened is that Jacob confessed and he came clean from the lying and the deception. And it would seem that that lying and that deception or that lack of faith that God would take care of him was holding back God's blessing on his life. Because as soon as he did that, over the very next year, he was blessed with a hundredfold return on his harvest. Now that doesn't mean that if you're living righteous, you're going to be rich. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is sometimes there are things and ways that the Lord desires to bless us, but those things are being held back because we're stubbornly holding on to a sin. And that seems to be the case in this instance. But wait a minute, but wait a minute. Isaac is still in Philistine territory. He's still in the place that God told him to pass through to sojourn through, the place God told him specifically to not put down any roots. And yet we see Isaac doing literally the opposite. He changes professions from a shepherd to a farmer and is now literally putting down roots by planting crops, which is a significant move towards tying oneself geographically to the land that you're staying at. And yet the Lord blesses him. Because so often when we move away from the Lord and we start heading in the wrong direction, Have you noticed that the Lord usually doesn't immediately stop blessing us? There's sort of this grace period. He keeps blessing us as he says, hey buddy, you're you're headed in the wrong direction. You need to get back on track. And what we so often do is make the fatal mistake of assuming that God's blessing on our life is an endorsement of what we're doing rather than an extension of his grace. And so we'll tell ourselves and we'll tell others, hey, listen, you know, I know I've got off track a little bit, but if the Lord didn't want me doing this, then, then I wouldn't still be being blessed like I am. That's how, you know, I know what the word of God says, but, but things are going well for me. God's blessing me, so gotta be doing something right. We mistake God's grace for his endorsement of our disobedience and sin. We forget that God is just saying, hey, I'm gonna give you some grace while you go off track, give you some time to get back on track. And the problem is that if we don't respond to the Lord's kindness and the Lord's grace, if we won't respond when he he comes in kindness to put an arm around our shoulder and whisper a corrective word in our ear, then what we're telling him is, I need you to come to me in a firmer more disciplinary manner because I'm not really gonna respond to the kind word of correction. And so we communicate to the Lord, I need you to turn up the pressure and the heat in my life before you're actually gonna get me back on track. So make a note of this. When we start heading in the wrong direction, we should be careful to not mistake the Lord's grace for his endorsement of our behavior. We should be very careful. In every area of life, just because there hasn't been discipline yet, don't assume that God's approving of your or my disobedience. He's just being gracious and giving you time to turn around. If you know that you're not walking with the Lord in a certain part of your life, don't make this mistake. It's way better to turn and obey him in that period of grace than to wait for that period of discipline. So back to our text, remember the last thing we read that after all of Isaac's blessings, the Philistines envied him. Verse 15, 
Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with earth. So God wanted to teach Isaac that repentance leads to blessing, so he blessed Isaac, but Isaac still wasn't where God wanted him to be. So the Lord had to keep Isaac moving. How is the Lord going to accomplish that? Well, he simply makes it impossible for Isaac to stay where he's at. He stops up the wells. There's no water. You got to move. You got to go somewhere else where there's water. Verse 16, and Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So instead of recognizing that God is trying to get him to move back to the promised land, Isaac literally moves just outside of the city. He leaves the place of compromise but he compromises on how far he goes when he leaves the place of compromise. It's, it's a half measure. It's like the guy or girl who breaks up with their boyfriend or girlfriend because they're not a believer and they're sleeping together and then they say, but you know what, let's stay friends and keep in touch. That's a really stupid idea. It's a really stupid idea because it's a half measure and that's exactly what Isaac does. Oh, I need to leave the place of compromise, but Maybe I can compromise on leaving the place of compromise and just stay just outside the area of compromise. And all Isaac has done is communicate to God, hey, nice try, but that wasn't actually enough pressure yet to get me to really move to where you want me to go. So you gotta turn up the pressure even more, Lord, if you wanna get a response, to which God always says, okay. Verse 18 And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, underline Esek, because they quarreled with him. Esek or Asek literally means contention. So God is something he wants to see accomplished in and through the life of Isaac, but Isaac will not get with the program. So the Lord sends some contention Isaac's way to get him to keep moving. So does Isaac take the hint now and start heading straight for the promised land? Well, not quite. Verse 21 goes a little further. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna literally means strife. Do you realize that the Lord will sometimes even use, even send contention and strife into your life to accomplish his will? To get you to move to where he wants you to be? And this happens even in well-meaning believers who are out to do nothing but serve Jesus. In Acts 15, we find Paul and Barnabas planning their next missionary journey together in the early years of the church and they're gonna go visit some of the churches that they've planted and check in and see how they're doing. Barnabas says, this is a great idea. Let's take our boy John Mark with us. And Paul says, John Mark? The same John Mark who was with us on our last trip and quit halfway through because he got homesick? That same John Mark? Uh, Heck no, we're not taking John Mark with us. Barnabas says, listen, listen, God's doing a work. I've been praying and I feel like the Lord wants us to take John Mark. And Paul says, well, you know, that's funny because I've been praying and I feel like we're not supposed to take John Mark with us. So you need to go back and you need to pray and ask the Lord to tell you the truth because whoever you're listening to, apparently it's not the truth. And Barnabas says, well, well, Paul, maybe you need to fast. 
because I've heard from the Lord on this. And John Mark's meant to come with us. And Paul says, no, you fast. And things get so bad, they stop speaking to each other. This is the apostle Paul and Barnabas the encourager of the early church. You have believers who are praying and seemingly hearing different things from God. So what do they do? Well, they split up and they go in two different directions on two different trips, which both end up being blessed by God and accomplishing great things for the kingdom. Barnabas takes John Mark with him. Paul sets off without him. So who was right? Well, both of them. You see, God was calling Paul to go on a missionary journey without John Mark. And God was calling Barnabas to go on a missionary journey with John Mark. What happened is that Paul and Barnabas wrongly assumed that because they'd been working together for so long, whatever the Lord would have for them to do next, surely they were meant to do it together. They went into their prayers with that absolute assumption, but that wasn't the case. And so the Lord had to go to the extraordinary length of stepping in and bringing strife into the situation in order to get them to separate and go to where he wanted them to be. John Mark will go on, he'll do great on that trip. He'll really grow, he'll become a great leader and he will author the Gospel of Mark that's in your Bibles. And in the years to come, Paul will specifically request a visit from John Mark. He'll ask his church to send him to him because he finds John Mark to be such a great help, encouragement, and friend. So make a note of this. God will even use strife to move us to where he wants us to be. He'll even use strife to move us to where he wants us to be. Sometimes we're not willing to hear from God, but sometimes we just can't hear from God because we've got a preconceived idea. We've made an assumption. We've got a paradigm in our head that's so strong and firm, we're not even open to considering any other possibilities. And so God has to step in and bring some strife to get us to where we need to be, which is why Romans 8.28 is so powerful. You know it. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you realize that all things includes even things like strife? That is a prayer that I pray, quoting this verse, probably more than any other in my life, for real. In difficult situations, in situations where I'm praying for people, in situations where it feels like everything's falling apart, I begin so many prayers for myself in those situations and for others with that verse, Father, thank you that you are causing all things to work together for good. Thank you that even in the strife, even in the chaos, you are at work, you are doing something good here because you promised you would. One way or another, even when things seem like they're not working out, the will of the Lord will be accomplished. It'll be accomplished. Verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So Isaac doesn't move. He doesn't really get seriously journeying until contention and strife come into his life, until the pressure increases, till the heat is turned up. And you know this too, that in the scriptures, many times the work of God in our lives is compared to a metalsmith who purifies gold and silver by boiling it, turning up the heat so much that it bubbles and boils and the impurities rise to the surface where they can be scooped off. And the idea is that turning up the heat and the pressure in our life is how God is able to remove the impurities from our life. Sometimes they don't come out any other way. And the Lord is so gracious, you know. He doesn't crush us. 
He doesn't take us through a season of boiling and brutal refining and then say, okay, now again, and again, and again, and again. He doesn't do that. He's taken Isaac through a season of growth. He's taken Isaac through a season of shaping him through some contention and strife. He got him to to leave the place of compromise. He got him to put some distance between himself and the place of compromise. He's not yet where he needs to be. But the Lord looks at Isaac now and he says, he says, take a breather, Isaac. We've seen some good growth in you in the last little while. Some good growth. And the Lord just says, this is a time to take a break and rest for a little bit, Isaac. I'm not out to crush you. And that's how the Lord works. He's out to grow us, but he's not out to crush us. And this is why I tell people, you know, when you're in a season of rest and peace and prosperity in life, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Rest. Sleep in. Go eat dinner with friends. Take that vacation trip. Soak up every second of it because for most of life, we're either coming out of a trial or about to go into one because the Lord is working in us. So when he gives us that season of rest, it's because he wants you to rest. He wants you to rest. I've spoken to Christians and said, how how are you doing? And some of them have said, really good. Like I feel kind of bad because there's... There's no persecution or anything going on in my life. And I tell them, then enjoy it. Be thankful. Rest. Bless the Lord. Be grateful. Enjoy this season because it's for your benefit. It's for you to rest. So Isaac's not yet where he needs to be, but he's where God wants him to be to rest for a little bit. It says, so he called its name, the name of the well that he dug there, Rehoboth, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us. And we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth just means room or open spaces. Verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. Beersheba means well of the covenant or or seven wells. And you've heard of it in our previous studies. Verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him, to Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So, and then underline this, he built an altar there. He built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. As Isaac finally leaves the place of compromise and starts moving toward the promised land, his priorities begin to change. And we see that in verse 25. We notice that Isaac has stopped planting crops and he's made himself mobile again, ready to move as the Lord tells him to. But even more importantly, when Isaac now stops for an extended period of time, what's the first thing he does now? He builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, his heart is beginning to change because he's left the place of compromise and he's putting some distance between himself and the place of compromise. Please understand this. If you're in the place of compromise and you're waiting for your heart to change before you leave the place of compromise, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. Because the place of compromise is the very thing that's compromising your heart right now. This is why it's so crucial in marriage or relationships, in your relationship with the Lord, to not say, man, I gotta wait for my heart to change, but to rather say, no, I gotta put some distance between myself and the thing that's compromising my heart. And as you begin to do that, 
your heart begins to change. Specifically, your spiritual sensitivity begins to return. But you got to leave the place of compromise. You might not get all the way where you need to be, but as soon as you start getting some distance, you're going to find your heart beginning to change. So write this down. As Isaac leaves the place of compromise, his spiritual sensitivity begins to return. As he leaves the place of compromise, his spiritual sensitivity begins to return. Verse 26, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Like Abimelech, Phicol is just a title, the title given to the commander of Abimelech's army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, we've certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we've not touched you and since we've done nothing to you but good. Eh, not really. And have sent you away in peace. Eh, also not really. And you are now the blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast and they ate and drank. And we just see in that that Isaac is gracious and he's humble. He doesn't say, well, forget you guys. Don't you remember? You kicked me out of your country. So yeah, I'm becoming a mighty man and I'm becoming even mightier day by day. And when my time comes, I'm gonna come and kill you all. He's just humble and he says, sure, we can make peace. Verse 31, then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath to one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we found water. So we called it Shiva. Therefore, the name of the city is Beer Sheva to this day. Uh, Shiva just means an oath. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. That really sounds like a rapper's name, Basemath. But anyway, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau did something, probably deliberately, that was offensive to his parents. He married women from Ishmael's side of the family. They were pagans who were in the line of the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham. And again, Esau is just serving as a picture of what the flesh does. It doesn't care what's best or what's pleasing to the Lord or what's spiritually wise. The flesh says, yeah, but they're hot. They're good to look at. I like them, so I'm gonna marry them. And who cares if we don't share the same beliefs? If it, if it grieves my parents, who love the Lord? Well, who cares? The flesh doesn't care. Verse one, going straight into chapter 27. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. So Isaac's practically blind at this point at the ripe old age of 135. And we're gonna find that he thought he was on death's door, but in reality, he's gonna live about another 45 years past this point. His brother Ishmael died when he was 137 and it seems like Jacob thought that his destiny was going to be similar. We read that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. So first you gotta get rid of your Sunday school idea if you were raised in the church of how this goes down. Because in, in your brain, Jacob and Esau are like teenage boys at this point. Uh, but in reality, they're both around 75 years old. They're fully grown men. Um, pretty much with their own families at this point in time. And he, Esau, answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. 
and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac is still a carnivore, man. That man loved his meat and he says, I think I'm gonna die and before I die, I just wanna eat some more meat. So before we do that, why don't you go get me some meat and that'll really get me in the mood to bless you. But here's the deal as well. Isaac is again showing his preference for Esau. We talked about this last week. Esau was his favorite. Everybody knew it, including Jacob and Esau. Esau was the man's man, the outdoor type. And here's the thing though. Jacob would have known that Esau had sold his birthright. More than that, Jacob would have known about the prophecy God had spoken to Rebekah about Jacob and Esau before they were even born. He would have known that the Lord had told Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. So he knew that the will of the Lord was that everything would go through Jacob. All the blessing would go through Jacob. Isaac is going against the will of the Lord by planning to bless Esau over Jacob. That's why he's doing this in a low-key, private manner in his tent, as opposed to in public at a feast, which is how the blessing would normally be given. Verse 5 Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. Just a little context for you. It doesn't really happen today, but back then, mothers would sometimes eavesdrop on their husbands and children's conversation. It's hard for us to understand today, but but that's what would happen back then. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food for them from your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a, he's a hairy man. He's a coconut, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. I'm a grape, mom. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. Well, you won't seem to be a deceiver, Jacob. You'll be a deceiver. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. So Rebecca is making a, a classic mistake here in the life of the believer. She's, she's trying to help God. You ever tried to help God out? As though God did not recognize that Jacob was the one who hungered for godly things and not Esau. As though God didn't realize that. God doesn't need our help, but man, do we love to help God out sometimes. He needs his heart changed, Lord, so you sit this one out, and I'll just manipulate him into changing God. Well, she needs to change her ways, Lord, so I'll take care of this one. I've got a sophisticated plan of withholding all affection, which should work wonders and solve the problem here. Hey, I know I shouldn't be sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but... They're not a believer. And, and you know, if I break up with them, they'll never become a believer. So Lord, there's some angles here that you're not seeing. And instead of praying and obeying, we're plotting. We know God's word. We know his work. We know what should happen. But we don't do it his way. Make a note of this and we'll talk about it. God's work must be done God's way. God's work must be done God's 
way. You know, Moses was growing up in Egypt. If you know the story, you know he was raised as part of the Egyptian royal family and he was in the palace while his people, the Israelites, were enslaved to the tyrannical Egyptians. And he wanted to see his people set free and one day when he was about 40, still Egyptian royalty, he he saw an Egyptian slave master beating one of his brethren, a Hebrew. And so he went and rescued this Israelite and ended up killing the Egyptian and burying the body in the sand. And, and he thought to himself, you know, I'm going to be a folk hero in the eyes of my people after this. But what was the problem? The problem was God hadn't told Moses to do any of that. Hadn't told him to do any of that. Moses came up with his own plan in his own energy his own efforts, and if you know the story, you know that his people didn't receive him as a Hebrew. They ended up ratting him out, gossiping about him, and Moses ended up having to flee for his life and spent 40 years living on the backside of the desert in hiding, after which God would free the Israelites, and he'd do it through Moses, but in a completely different way, his way, because God's work must be done God's way. Think of King David who desired to see the Ark of the Covenant brought back into the capital city of Jerusalem when he found out it was just outside the city about six miles away. He wanted to bring it in. He wanted to have his people experience the blessings of God and the glory of the presence of God. All good things and all things that God wanted too. So David got 30,000 men together and has this incredible parade all planned out to bring the ark back from where it was into Jerusalem. And he had two men driving the cart. He had one named Uzzah, which means strong, and he had another man named Ahio, which means friendly. This is such a great setup. You've got strength and friendliness in front, 30,000 men singing and chanting, but, but you know the story. The cart hits a bump in the road and Mr. Strong, Uzzah, stretches out his hand to steady the ark and as soon as he touches it, God strikes him dead. Which I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's a real buzzkill for a parade when that happens, when someone dies on the parade while everyone's watching. It's a real downer, really hard to get the mood back up after that. And David is, is furious. He's furious, he's angry because he can't figure out why God wouldn't be okay with such a fantastic procession. And so he pouts and he he sulks for several months. But then David gets back into the word and he digs into the scriptures. And as he does so, he discovers that the scriptures lay out very specific instructions as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. There were specific poles that were to be slid underneath the bottom of the ark through these rings and then it was to be lifted onto the shoulders of not just any men but very specific Levites and it was to be carried. And along the way there were to be bulls sacrificed on a regular basis, a shockingly small interval, a small amount of spaces, six paces, then you sacrifice a bull. Six more paces, sacrifice another bull. And we'd look on and we'd say, that is not efficient at all. I mean, that's like the barbecue that never ends. And yet, and yet it was effective. Why was it effective? Because that's how the Lord wanted it done. And sometimes there's a difference between doing things right and doing the right thing. 
And when it comes to spiritual life, God is not concerned with efficiency. Have you noticed this? He's not concerned with efficiency. He will work for years at one thing in your life and my life when we would say, Lord, I'm being so stubborn, wouldn't we get further ahead if you just skip this lesson and move to the next one? Maybe I'll do better at that one. And God says, I got all the time in the world. Let's do this the right way. He's concerned with effectiveness, not efficiency. God's work must be done God's way. And Jacob and his mother, they had God's word. They knew God's work, but they didn't understand it had to be done God's way. God didn't need their help just like he doesn't need our help. Verse 14, and he, Jacob, went and got them, the two baby goats, and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Are you not just in awe of just how hairy Esau must have been? I mean, like, there's hairy dudes, but then there's, like, goat hair and skin on the back. You're talking about a guy, like, you couldn't see his skin through his arms. There was that much hair going on here. That's just incredible to me. Verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my, fa <clears throat> my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he said, um, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isn't that just cringeworthy? You're trying to spiritualize our deceptions, our manipulations, and our sins, and yet... Yet we often do exactly the same thing, don't we? When we know we're in sin, someone points it out and we're like, well, I haven't had that word from the Lord. Leaving out the part that we haven't actually gone to the Lord because we know that's probably what he would say. Well, I haven't had that word from the Lord. But Isaac is suspicious. Verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that, that I may feel you, my son, whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to his father and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the, the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. This is pretty funny because what would make a field blessed in this time would be that it would be full of animals, which when he says you smell like a blessed field essentially means you smell like the byproducts of animals in a field is what he's telling him. You smell like Cattle dung, basically. Verse 28, therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. And then underline this, be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. 
Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. And there it is. God's will is accomplished despite trying to get around God's will. Isaac ends up blessing Jacob, including the very prophecy God gave to Rebekah before the boys were even born that the older would serve the younger. Unbeknownst to him, Isaac says, let it happen. And Isaac fell for this deception because he did something you and I often do. And it's always a surefire way to be deceived. He trusted his senses rather than the spirit. Write that down. If you want to be deceived and make poor decisions, trust your senses instead of the spirit. Trust your senses instead of the spirit. Don't pray. Don't seek the Lord. Just just trust that how things look to you and appear to you is true reality. Just do that and you'll find yourself being deceived over and over again. You'll find yourself making foolish mistakes over and over again. Only the Lord knows true reality. Only the word of God reveals true reality and only the Holy Spirit reminds us of the word when we need to see true reality. It requires humility to see true reality because it means recognizing that we cannot judge wisely and accurately. You and I cannot even perceive reality apart from God helping us through his word and his spirit. Do you realize that? And so Satan loves to lure us into sin and bad decisions by appealing to our pride and saying, yeah, yep, that thought going through your head, that is exactly how it is. That's exactly what they're thinking. That's exactly why they did that. That's exactly what's going on. But what humility says is, is Lord, show me what to do here. Give me the right words to say and help me not to say the wrong ones. Father, help me not to make assumptions. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know why she did that. I don't know what their motivation is. I don't know what's going on in their heart. But you do, Lord. So please help me. Lead me. Guide me. Give me your wisdom. Man. Lord, help us. Help us to do that. I don't know how that is for you, but, but my prayer is just help me, Lord, because that is so hard to do. It is so hard to do. And you only realize you need to do it when you get tired of sticking your foot in your mouth over and over again. You ever done that? Pre- prepared a great monologue to share with someone? and found out that, that none of that monologue had any application because you actually didn't understand what was going on at all. You do that a few times and you get tired of it and you begin to realize, man, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts. I don't know what their motivation is. Only the Lord does. So Lord, help me. Help me to perceive true reality by your grace and your word and your spirit. Verse 30, now it happened As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And here we go. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I'm your son. Your firstborn, Esau. Can you imagine this moment as Isaac 
suddenly realizes that something's going on and what is in all likelihood going on. Verse 33, then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I've blessed him and and indeed he shall be blessed. So Isaac is not only shaken because he's been tricked, he's shaken to his core because he realizes that exactly what the Lord said would happen before the boys were even born has just happened. Despite all his best efforts to bless Esau instead of Jacob, when all the dust has settled, Jacob is the one who's ended up with the blessing just as the Lord desired. It would have been a moment of of terrifying awe as he encountered the real sovereignty and power of God. Isaac recognizes there's no sense in punishing Jacob. There's no sense in trying to change anything because this is exactly the outcome that the Lord willed from the beginning. He ordained it. In Hebrews 11.20, in the New Testament, it describes this event very strangely. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. It's strange because it sure doesn't seem by faith when you read the story, right? It seems like it was by deception that Isaac blessed Jacob, right? But the faith that he displayed was in not fighting against Jacob's successful deception because he recognized that the Lord's will had been accomplished one way or another. Isaac understood what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, would capture in Proverbs 19.21 when he wrote, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Another translation says many are the plans in a man's heart, but the will of the Lord prevails. The will of the Lord prevails. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? And you'll recall from last week's study that the name Jacob means heel grabber. So Esau was saying, he's living up to his name. He's tripping me up yet again. For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Well, well, actually, let's get this right, Esau. You sold it to him, didn't you? But he's doing what we often do when we realize we've made a dumb decision. Our first response is that we claim that we're a victim somehow. Write this down. When our mistakes are exposed, our flesh often responds by claiming to be a victim. Claiming to be a victim. Well, I only did that because he, well, I only did that because she did. I'm the victim, so my sin is justified. We, we love to go there, don't we? Esau goes on and says, and now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I've made him your master. And all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me. Me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, 
and you shall serve your brother. Now notice the strange final part of Isaac's blessing upon Esau. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And everything about this blessing makes pretty much immediate sense except for this last part where Isaac declares there's going to be a time in the future when the descendants of Esau will break free from being ruled over by the descendants of Jacob. And so we got to do a quick sidebar here to help you understand what he's talking about here because it's fascinating. We have thousands of years of history between that moment and today. And we have Bible prophecy telling us about days yet to come in the future as well. And so when we put this all together, there's a picture that emerges here. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, will go on to indeed be ruled over by Israel. They'll never be more powerful than Israel. They'll spend their entire lifetime in Israel's shadow, so to speak. And God's anger towards the descendants of Esau and the Edomites will come up over and over again in the Old Testament. The whole book of Obadiah in the Old Testament is devoted to the prophet Obadiah indicting, speaking against the Edomites. It's the only book in the Bible where the whole subject of the book is God speaking against one specific ethnic group, and it's these descendants of Esau. And the line of the Edomites will make its way from Esau to a pagan leader named Amalek, and then later to an Edomite named Haman, who shows up in the book of Esther. And Haman was a son of Agag, an Amalekite. And he was determined, if you know the story, to destroy the Jews. It is a defining characteristic of the spirit that the Bible calls the Antichrist spirit. It showed up in Hitler, it showed up in Caesar Nero, and it showed up in Haman. And the giveaway sign of the Antichrist spirit is always this desire to completely wipe out the Jewish people. Esau will, in the very next chapter, seek to kill his brother Jacob, who later on will have his name changed to Israel. Israel. The Amalekites waged war against Israel with the goal of wiping them out, and God will actually command the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites. And then we get to Haman. And then we get to the third century BC and a group called the Nabataeans come into the area where the Edomites lived, which was the southeast border of Israel. And the Nabataeans were an Arab people and they took control of the region and they drove the Edomites out of the area where the rock city of Petra is today in present day Jordan. And so the Edomites went up a little bit still in the southern area of Israel to an area named Hebron and they found refuge in Israel and they settled there in part of what's known as the West Bank today. And over time they became known as the Idumeans. And when you read about the region called Idumea in Mark 3.8 in the New Testament, it's referring to that area around Hebron in the West Bank where these descendants of Esau ultimately settled. Well, to make a long story slightly shorter, something very interesting happens after that, namely the Maccabean Revolt. The, the Maccabeans, this family of Judas Maccabeus, rose up and revolted against the Syrians who had conquered Israel and taken control of Jerusalem. And when I say that the Syrians were a brutal people, if you've studied it or been with us, this is the empire that gave us Antiochus Epiphanes, that guy who came in, slaughtered thousands of Jews, and sacrificed a pig inside the temple in the Holy of Holies and set up an idol to a false 
pagan God. He was a terrible, vile person, another person with that antichrist spirit. But incredibly, the Maccabeans successfully revolted and they threw out the Syrians. And then in the late second century, a descendant of the Maccabees, John Hyrcanus, said to those Edomites, now known as Idumeans, living in the West Bank, he said, we're only going to let you guys stay here in Israel if you convert to Judaism. He made them commit forced conversions, and so the Idumeans became Jews religiously, even though they were Edomites ethnically. Were they ever really happy about that? Not really. The Jews called them and considered them half-breeds, but nevertheless, there they were in the land having taken on the religion of the Jews. Well, some more time passes and the Romans begin to rise to power across the globe. And during the first century BC, Julius Caesar comes to power in Rome. And around the year 47 BC, he appoints Antipater, an Idumean, to be the governor of the province of Judea. Now, Antipater will be the father of Herod. And Herod being a family name, all of the Herods would come from the Idumean Antipater, this line of Esau, including Herod the Great, the Herod we read about in the Christmas story who ordered the genocide of all the Jewish baby boys under the age of two in an attempt to kill Jesus before he could become an adult. That's the Antichrist spirit at work again, trying to stop the work of Jesus, stop the work of Messiah. From generation to generation, God declares in Ezekiel, I will lay my vengeance on Edom. Because from the very beginning, beginning with Esau, there's been this Antichrist spirit at work in the line, in the descendants of Esau, desiring to destroy the Jewish people and stop the work of Messiah. In the year A.D. 70, the Romans, led by General Titus Vespasian, were positioned to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that thousands of Idumeans actually showed up and helped defend the temple against the Romans. However, didn't succeed. Thousands of them were killed. The city is infamously destroyed and leveled to the ground. Jerusalem is done. The surviving Jews scatter across the globe in the event known as the Diaspora. And the Idumeans migrate to Italy settling in the city of Rome, where their descendants are to this day. And according to Daniel 9.26, the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, shall be, you might recall from our study, of the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. Thus, the nationality of Antichrist will be Roman. He'll likely be Italian. But his ethnic background will be Idumean from the line of Esau because prophecies throughout the Old Testament and the Bible indicate that Antichrist will come from the line of Esau. You see, God was not being flippant. He wasn't being capricious or unfair when he later declared, Esau have I hated. The spirit of Antichrist has traveled through Esau's family line all the way from Genesis up to the final Antichrist that we encounter in the book of Revelation. You see, God's choices are always based on his foreknowledge, his perfect, complete knowledge of what every person will do with their free will, including all of Satan's future schemes. And as he looked into the future, he saw one person after another in the descendants of Esau 
that were open to being used by Satan, that loved the flesh more than the spirit. And God said, I hate Esau because over and over again he chooses the flesh over the spirit to the degree where he hates the spirit and he hates my people. So when is the day that Esau will break the yoke of Jacob from off his neck, come out from under the Israelites? I suggest it's going to be the day that Antichrist rises to power and sets up a statue of himself in the temple of Jerusalem, just as Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 and as Daniel described as well. Pretty interesting stuff. Let's keep going. Verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, my dad's almost dead. As soon as he's dead, Jacob is next. And we'll pick up that story in our next study. And there's a whole lot that we find in today's study. And like I said, my prayer is just that the Holy Spirit will illuminate one or two things that you and I really need to hear. But there's a few quick parenting lessons in this. I just got to point out before we wrap up here. The blessing that Esau sought was such a big deal. The blessing was such a big deal because it was also the very same thing that we all crave. The blessing of a father who will tell you who you are, who you're becoming, and where you're going. You know, kids crave that. They crave that. So do adults as well. But parents, give that to your kids. Grandparents, give that to your grandchildren. Speak into them the gifts that you can see that God has placed in them. Tell them that you see them. Speak into them the things that you see God growing in them, who they're becoming, the work that God is doing. And speak into them where they're going, that God has a family for them, that God has things he wants to do in them and through them in the future, that God is gonna use them in the future. And if you've never had that, you can, you can. Your heavenly father is, is always available to speak into you who you are, who you're becoming and where you're going. And he loves to do that. And if you haven't heard that from the Lord in a while, would you just ask him to remind you of who you are in him? Let him tell you who you are. You'll be blessed by that. And then as I share a couple of things here, I just want to point out these parenting lessons here. Don't miss the fact that Jacob and Esau are over 70 years old when this is going on. So we're not just talking about lessons for parents when your kids are kids. We're talking about the role that, that God gives parents in the lives of their children until the day they die. There's a role that God gives a mother and a father in the lives of their children as long as they're on this earth. And the things we're talking about here are, are not for just children who are aged as children. They're for sons and for daughters, regardless of the age that they are. Isaac and Rebecca, mom and dad in our story, it, it seems like they apparently just stopped communicating. They're each doing their own thing. They're actually trying to accomplish the opposite thing. Did you notice that? Isaac is trying to get Esau blessed. Rebecca is trying to get Jacob blessed. And they don't ever even talk to each other. Isaac and Rebecca don't even talk about it. Don't let that happen in your marriage. Don't, don't let it turn into... Two people who just live in the same house but never communicate. Do the hard work of communicating, even when it's difficult. Don't stop communicating. 
Don't play favorites with your kids. It's going to lead to heartbreak. And then lastly here, I can't help but notice that mom and dad don't confront their children's sins. And I think this is especially powerful because Jacob and Esau are not children anymore. But we can look on from the outside and recognize that, man, they should have said something, right? They should have done something. But in Esau's life, they, they didn't. Esau marries a couple of pagan women. They don't say anything. Esau sells his birthright. They don't say, son, you, you, you got to learn from this. You got to slow down and make wise choices. Esau plans to murder his brother. They don't say, what are you thinking? You're mad because you made a mistake, not your brother. They don't do that. Esau cries that he's a victim. His parents don't say, no, 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 you're not seeing this straight. You're not seeing this straight, son. You're not a victim. You're just experiencing the consequences of your own bad decisions. Mom and dad never confront him. They never correct his thinking. And you know that Esau never really gets better. He never really turns. And the story of his descendants ends with the Antichrist. It really doesn't get worse than that, right? The Antichrist. That's where his story goes. And maybe mom and dad felt like they didn't have the moral high ground. Like they had made mistakes too. They had spent time in the place of compromise. So, you know, I, I can't really talk to my kid because he's seen me make a bunch of mistakes too. But, but here's the thing about love. Love doesn't care how it makes you look. Love is only concerned with what's best for the other person. Love doesn't care if you might be embarrassed, you might be humiliated, you might be reminded of your past failures. Love only cares about what's best for them. Maybe mom and dad were saying, you know, I just, I just don't want to bring conflict into the family. I don't want to mess up those meals that we could be having together as a family. I want all the grandkids to play together can't we all just get, oh, why, why bring up this stuff? This could really divide the family. Maybe they were thinking that. But you know what ends up happening? Esau wants to kill his brother. His brother has to run for his life. So in their attempts to avoid conflict, that doesn't even end up happening. The, the conflict just gets worse. It just gets worse because nothing ever gets confronted and dealt with. Mom and dad, you're always going to be mom and dad. You're always going to hold a position in the lives of your children that God has given you. And you're always going to need to do what is best for your children. Not what is always easy, but what is best for your children. That'll never change. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Heavenly Father, our first prayer is simply that you would absolutely shine a light on the thing that you most want us to hear. I just pray for any of us, if we're in here thinking about somebody else and thinking about how much they need to hear something in this message, Lord, would you help us just to stop and to ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to hear from this message? What do you want to do in me, Lord? Because, Father, we just confess that, that we don't even perceive reality accurately. We don't know what other people are thinking. We don't know what their motivation is. Only you do. 
And so, Lord, help us to make our only concern being connected to you, being led by you, getting our wisdom from you, making our decisions through you by your spirit and not by our flesh. Lord, we confess that we don't know. We don't know. And we need your help. We need your wisdom, Lord. Father, would you help us to not trust our senses, but to trust your spirit. Father, would you help us to hold on to the promise of Romans 8.28 that you're causing all things to work together to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, you're doing good even through strife, even through contention. Your work will be done. It'll be accomplished in us. But Lord, our desire is that we, we wouldn't fight you, that we wouldn't resist you that we would welcome your work, that you would find in us willing hearts, willing to change, ears willing to listen, eyes willing to see, Lord God. We don't want to waste time in the place that we're not meant to be. We want to be in the promised land, Lord. We want to be in that place of rest, Lord. So Father, give it. Give us the eyes to see what we need to see. If there's something we've been stubborn about, just be gracious one more time and speak to us again. If there's something that we haven't even considered because in our minds it's not even a possibility, Lord, would you give us a clear, open mind to hear from you whatever you want to say, Lord. Help us to respond humbly to your grace, Lord God. If we're off the path, help us to turn back to you and not assume that you're approving of what we're doing, but to rather humbly say, thank you for being gracious, Lord. Thank you for being good to me. Help me to get back on track. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.